Here's my recommendation. Grab your family, grab your friends, grab your neighbors, get to the poll. Hey, I agree with Michael Cohen. Get to the poll. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California on KKRN, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, you can run, but you can't hide. From the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Let's just start right here. Let's just uh, let's just play the audio. Here's a reporter asking uh, a series of simple questions about health care to a Republican candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. The CBO score, because you know you were waiting to make your decision about health care until you saw the bill and it just came out. And, what yeah, you and we'll talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if okay, you have to speak right with now. Shane, please. But you don't have- The last guy that came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. You'd like me to get the hell out of here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, hey you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. He just body slammed me. That was Guardian reporter Ben Jacobs uh, asking questions and being body slammed, asking questions to a U.S. uh, congressman, a man running for the U.S. House of Representatives, being body slammed, picked up and slammed to the ground by then Republican U.S. House candidate Greg Gianforte on the night before his special election in Montana for their one at-large statewide seat to the U.S. House of Representatives back in May of last year, the night before the election. The special election was meant to fill the House seat that was vacated by Donald Trump's now scandal-plagued Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke. 
with many early votes already cast before the incident on that night, Gianforte ended up winning, winning the U.S. House seat in the very Republican-leaning state of Montana. The people that you hear Jacobs there asking for their names at the end of that clip, uh, he's, he's talking to a Fox News crew, which happened to also be in the room at the same time and witnessed the assault by the now GOP Congressman Gianforte who originally um, lied about that criminal assault against a journalist for daring to ask him polite questions about health care, about a health care bill and whether he would vote for it or not. Gianforte initially misled investigators. He lied to police, uh, claiming that it was Jacobs who instigated that attack, falsely claiming that Jacobs had grabbed him by the wrist and pulled both of them to the floor. According to documents that were released under a court order following uh, a request from news agencies at the time. But Gianforte later pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault after eyewitness statements and audio tapes. That audio that you just heard made very clear that Gianforte was blatantly lying when he said that he was defending himself against that reporter, Jacobs, against that bespectacled reporter Jacobs, whose glasses were broken in the incident as he was slammed to the floor. The Fox News reporters who happened to witness that attack said, uh, quote, Gianforte grabbed Jacobs by the neck with both hands and slammed him into the ground behind him. They said we watched in disbelief as Gianforte then began punching the reporter. As Gianforte then moved on top of Jacobs, he began yelling something to the effect of, I'm sick and tired of this. Speak with Shane, please. I'm sick and tired of you guys. The last time you came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. After Gianforte got caught, uh, and yes, after he won that election anyway, He pleaded guilty to assault charges the next month and said in an apology letter that Jacobs, in fact, did nothing wrong and that he, Gianforte, alone was responsible for the attack. He agreed to pay a $385 fine and completed 40 hours of community service and 20 hours of anger management counseling. And he also donated $50,000 to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which sounds like a lot of money, but actually Gianforte is a is a millionaire. He might be a billionaire. I'm not sure. Uh, he did not, however, uh, step down from his position as a U.S. congressman. That was May of last year. At a campaign rally in Montana on Thursday night for Greg Gianforte and for his re-election campaign, the president of the United States praised that Republican congressman for assaulting Guardian journalist Ben Jacobs. At the rally, uh, held smack dab in the middle of uh, what appears to be the, uh, the Trump administration's active participation in the cover-up of an apparent murder, assassination, and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi at this Saudi uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul, seemingly, allegedly, apparently, at the order of the ruling crown prince of U.S. ally Saudi Arabia. 
In the middle of all of that, at this rally on Thursday night, Trump joked about that assault on reporter Ben Jacobs that you just heard. Never wrestle him, Trump declared to great laughter and cheers at the campaign in Missoula after calling Gianforte up on stage with him, adding that when he first learned learned about that attack last year, he said, oh, this is terrible. He's going to lose the election. And then he uh, said that he thought, oh, well, wait a minute. I know Montana pretty well. I think it might help him. And it did, said Trump. And the crowd went wild with cheers. Any guy that can do a body slam, he's my kind of... Any guy that can do a body slam, he's my kind of guy. Went on to call him a great guy, a tough cookie. Trump's remarks of praise for Gianforte beating up a reporter came just hours after details of that apparent assassination of Washington Post journalist and Virginia resident Khashoggi after it was uh, detailed in an account from uh, Turkish officials who described Khashoggi, who went into the Saudi consulate to get some marriage documents as his fiance waited outside just two weeks ago. Uh, he was described as uh, being seized by a Saudi hit squad inside the, uh, inside the uh, consulate, having his fingers cut off, and then being decapitated before then being dismembered and secretly removed from the diplomatic mission in Istanbul. All of this just two weeks ago. The Toronto Star's Daniel Dale, who was covering that uh, Trump-Gianforte rally, uh, tweeted as Trump spoke, he said, quote, This is truly horrible. The president is gleefully applauding violence against a journalist amid an international controversy over the apparent murder of another journalist who lived in the U.S., Afterward, uh, John Mulholland, the editor of The Guardian, issued a statement saying the president of the United States tonight applauded the assault on an American journalist who works for The Guardian to celebrate an attack on a journalist who was simply doing his job is an attack on the First Amendment by someone who has taken an oath to defend it. In the aftermath of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, he said, it runs the risk of inviting other assaults on journalists, both here and across the world, where they often face far greater threats. We hope decent people will denounce these comments and that the president will see fit to apologize for them. Well, don't hold your breath for that, John Mulholland. Now, you may have already heard about all of this, uh, so apologies if so. Uh, but as a journalist myself, I think it's necessary to to take up Mulholland's call there and, frankly, denounce this horrific behavior by the president of the United States lauding the violent assault of a journalist to cheers from his impassioned supporters. That's important, I think, not just now, but anytime, but especially right now in the midst of this mystery, murder mystery, assassination mystery. I mean, to, 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 to not normalize this, to say whether it, uh, it, it makes any difference or not, whether you've heard it before, whether anybody listens to this show, in my opinion, I think it's important for people like myself, journalists, all journalists, but yes, all Americans, to say that, no, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. Not in my country. 
else this does not end well for any of us. Oliver Knox, the president of the White House Correspondents Association, issued uh, his own statement on Friday, said all Americans should recoil from the president's praise for a violent assault on a reporter doing his constitutionally protected job. This amounts to the celebration of a crime by someone sworn to uphold our laws and an attack on the First Amendment by someone who has solemnly pledged to defend it. We should never shrug at the president cheerleading for a violent act targeting a free and independent news media. For the record, in his reelection contest, Gianforte is being challenged in November by Democratic former state legislator Kathleen Williams. In case anyone up there in uh, Minnesota, I'm sorry, in Montana is uh, is listening today. I uh, hope that folks in Montana are paying attention, and I hope that, uh, as uh, the Toronto Star's Dan Dale wondered, that Montana media are not reporting the news today as, oh, the president came to town, but rather president applauds congressman's unprovoked assault on a journalist. This is not an academic uh, exercise of outrage here. This This is a warning. This is not just... This president and his supporters at, at, at campaign rallies amid what, by all accounts uh, to date, uh, point to an absolute gruesome murder by a key U.S. ally. You know, um, perhaps the 15 of the 1911 hijackers coming from Saudi Arabia should have been a hint. Or maybe the Saudi kingdom's regular beheadings. Maybe they should, those should have tipped us off. But instead, uh, Team Trump is now trying to find uh, any excuse they can, anything they can come up with for this, you know, to to cover essentially for Saudi, for this murder, for this apparent assassination of a journalist by the kingdom, including now apparently what Khashoggi's employers, the Washington Post, are referring to as a whisper campaign that is now happening in hopes of discrediting Khashoggi, I guess, to, you know, make it all okay, And it looks like that whisper campaign appears to be working as designed. Washington Post reports that in an attempt to give President Donald Trump cover from the widespread criticism of his kid glove treatment of Khashoggi's alleged murder by the Saudis, his allies, both on Capitol Hill and in media outlets, have begun spreading the notion that Khashoggi's uh, was sympathetic to uh, to terrorist movements. According to a Thursday Washington Post report, some House Republicans, House Republicans, have been quietly swapping articles to suggest that Khashoggi might have been a terrorist or at least sympathetic to them because, you know, I guess then it would be okay. It would be fine if he was abducted in a consulate had his fingers and head chopped off before being dismembered with no due process whatsoever because, hey, terrorism, am I right? By late Thursday, this this campaign appears to have uh, met at least part of its target. Fox News host Harris Faulkner, she said the Thursday that, uh, quote, Khashoggi was tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. She says, I just put it out there because it's, It is in the constellation of things that are being talked about. 
Desi Doyen, is that in the constellation of things that are being talked about? Is that the sort of thing that we just need to kind of toss out there on the uh, top the most watched uh, cable news network, as you see it? <laughs> well, that's what they do like to do. They like the, some say. Some say. People are saying. Trump uses it. Fox News uses it. That's how they introduce their propaganda, their false propaganda. I mean, this is this is creeping fascism, you know, one step at a time. It ain't so creeping. Well, it's, it's lurching fascism. Okay, it's lurching fascism. But, yeah. but regardless, the idea is you break a norm every single day and pretty much people just don't have time to keep track of all the norms that are being broken and all the, the scary things that are happening. On the right-wing uh, outlet, uh, CRTV host Mark Levin, good friend of Fox, uh, Fox News' is Sean Hannity and Donald Trump, so you know... We're going to be hearing more of this. Uh, Levin said that uh, Khashoggi was a, quote, longtime friend of terrorists. Wow. So again, who cares if you snatch him off the street, cut off his fingers, cut off his head, dismember him? Because, you know, longtime friend of terrorists. And you smear uh, him. I mean, if you look at any of his columns, he's not. Some of Trump's uh, surrogates uh, have also taken up the call, according to the Post. Donald Trump Jr. shared a tweet in which Khashoggi is described as, quote, tooling around Afghanistan with Osama bin Laden. Corey Stewart, the Republican running for U.S. Senate in Virginia, said on Thursday that, quote, Khashoggi was not a good guy himself. So, you know, despite <clears throat> none of that actually being true, it's close enough to justify ignoring his murder and continuing our association with the autocratic dictatorship that is Saudi Arabia and to continue selling them billions of dollars in arms so that, yes, they can continue to bomb and kill people with them, including in Yemen, as we, the uh, United States of America, give our thumbs up. And our president calls for more violence against journalists at the same time as all of this is going on. So, no, this is not OK. And yes, this is why it is so important for everyone to fight like hell, to overcome the odds, to overcome the voter suppression that I might have otherwise covered in detail in this slot today. Suppression that is now being reported in Tennessee and Alabama added to what we've already covered uh, recently as voter suppression by Republicans in Georgia and North Carolina, in Florida and North Dakota and other places which until the U.S. Supreme Court gutted it in 2013, places that had been covered by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that gutting of the Voting Rights Act, I should note, took place before Republicans stole the court's majority from Democrats after the death of Justice Scalia, before the seating of far-right Neil Gorsuch in Scalia's seat that was stolen from the Democrats, and before the accused sexual assaulter Brett Kavanaugh uh, was, was seated on the court thereafter. So, no, this is not creeping. This is lurching. This is all happening very quickly. So, yes, we need to vote this November 6th. Uh, by way of reminder, coming up on Monday, voter registration deadlines are happening in Alabama, in California, in South Dakota, and in Wyoming. Uh, we need to vote in numbers that have never been seen before. But don't take my word for it. 
uh, even Donald Trump's own former longtime personal attorney and longtime business partner, partner in crime, uh, Michael Cohen, who recently implicated Trump in federal court under pain of perjury in two different felony conspiracies relating to efforts to try and throw the 2016 presidential election, which appear to have been successful. Even Michael Cohen today is urging Americans to vote like hell this year. He has said he's a Democrat and he only changed his party uh, so that uh, he could be put in charge of become a co-chair for the Republican Party while Donald Trump was running. But he urged Americans to vote like hell to help uh, begin to bring an end to this madness on Friday in his first on-camera remarks since pleading guilty to eight federal felonies. Cohen was was caught outside his uh, apartment building in Manhattan by CNN reporter MJ Lee. You tweeted over the weekend that the upcoming elections will be the most important in our lifetime. You said people should get out and vote. What did you mean? Listen, here's my recommendation. Grab your family, grab your friends, grab your neighbors, get to the poll, because if not, you're going to have another two or another six years of this craziness. So make sure you vote. Michael Cohen, a warning that we are going to have another two years or another six years of this craziness if his old boss, Donald Trump, is not uh, responded to in some fashion by the voters. So, yes, please grab your friends, grab your family, uh, get out and vote. And since there has been so much voter roll purging in so many states, please make sure that you're registered as you as you think you are. Check your registration. I'm not kidding. Grab the friends, grab the family and ask them to do the same and then grab them again to make sure that they all vote. By the way, say what you want about Michael Cohen, but he's out there begging America to vote against the one guy that could get him off the hook with a pardon for the felonies that he has already pled guilty to. And he's still saying, go out and vote against that guy any way that you can. For now, that means voting for Democrats, presumably. But, of course, Democrats are only as good as we force them to be, apparently. How many years has it taken now before they are finally beginning to make a single-payer Medicare-for-all system central to their campaign? As we're finally beginning to see this year from Democrats. It wasn't because they wanted to do that. It was because voters have forced them to do that. And along those lines, it's going to take voters to begin forcing them as well, forcing those Democrats to respond to the theft of the U.S. Supreme Court once and if they ever take back both houses of Congress and the White House, which is beginning now, should hopefully beginning now as people are already voting uh, in early voting and in just over two weeks, really. We'll be voting on Election Day on November 6th. But the effort to get Democrats to do the right thing here and to not be afraid of doing the right thing, that effort uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court, that's also going to take years. But the effort to expand the court, yes, to pack the court while being discussed on air by some crazy progressive pundits and people on the radio like me, 
That is now being picked up by some very serious people, some very serious legal minds. Let's take a quick break here, and we will come back with Harvard Law Professor Michael Klarman to discuss exactly that. This conversation has got to begin somewhere. I say we begin it right now. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Here we are live at the gates of hell. Welcome no, back I to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, what seemed like a crazy, radical, out-of-left-field-could-never-actually-happen idea several months ago when we first spoke about it with Roosevelt University political scientist David Ferris discussing his new book, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, that idea suddenly doesn't seem so crazy and radical anymore. Just a few months later, at least not to many progressive political advocates, pundits, political scientists, and now even legal professors. Ferris had called for Democrats, should they ever be able to regain control of the U.S. House, Senate, and White House, to expand, yes, pack the U.S. Supreme Court in response to what Ferris describes as, and I agree with, the blatant Republican theft of the high court, when they refused to even meet with, much less hold an up or down vote for, the nomination of U.S. Court of Appeals uh, in D.C. Chief Judge Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy of the on the bench left by the February 2016 death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Had President Obama's rather centrist nominee been seated on the court at the time, Democratic appointees there would have enjoyed a 5-4 to four majority for the first time in decades. But, as you know, in an unprecedented display of bald partisan obstructionism in the U.S. Senate, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell held that seat open for nearly a year to then allow Donald Trump to eventually name Neil Gorsuch instead to the high court. And even then, Gorsuch was only rammed onto the court when McConnell and his Republicans did away with the long-standing rule requiring Supreme Court nominees to overcome a 60-vote filibuster-proof margin in order to be confirmed to the lifetime position on the bench. McConnell's justification was that the vacancy occurred too close to an election and that the American people should have a voice in who the next Supreme Court justice would be. After Scalia died in February of 2016, nine months before that year's general election, that, by contrast with the vacancy left by retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy in August of this year, 
just three months before this year's midterm general elections. Conveniently, the Republican Senate leader found no reason to allow Americans to have a voice in the confirmation of Donald Trump's second nominee to the court, the wildly controversial Brett Kavanaugh. So, yes, the court majority was stolen from Democrats and the politics are thick with hypocrisy from the Republicans who pulled off what must be described as one of the greatest political thefts in U.S. history, and they did so in broad daylight. But for now, it is done and the effects will be felt for generations. However, as Ferris argued on this show so many months back, there is a way that it can be undone. And uh, no difficult-to-pass constitutional amendment would be required to do it. Simply a Democratic majority in the U.S. House, Senate, and White House willing to add enough new seats to the court by statute to allow Democrats to restore a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court that should rightfully have been theirs in the first place. Ferris's idea seemed radical at the time, not that many months ago, but that now seems like forever ago, frankly. And the notion has gained no small amount of currency since then, if not among elected Democrats just yet, or seemingly the Democratic Party itself. Uh, at least the idea has received growing support from political scientists and pundits and, yes, even highly esteemed legal minds. Writing this past week at the Take Care blog, Harvard Law School professor Michael Klarman entered the fray to call for Democrats to, yes, pack the court should they ever regain the political muscle to do so in the not-too-distant future. While the idea may still seem crazy, radical, out of left field, and like it could never actually happen to many, professor Klarman argues that given the wholly undemocratic and illegitimate behavior by the Republican Party in recent years, in stealing and, yes, packing the court themselves in the bargain, that if Democrats don't respond, at least partially in kind, by packing the court themselves as soon as they can, they would be committing an act of what he calls political suicide, which some might argue they already have. Joining us now to discuss his take on this increasingly hot topic is Professor Michael Klarman. He is the Kirkland and Ellis professor at Harvard Law School. He clerked for the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, I've heard of her. Back on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, he is the author of several books, including From Jim Crow to Civil Rights, The Supreme Court and the Struggle for Racial Equality, From the Closet to the Altar, Courts, Backlash and the Struggle for Same-Sex Marriage, and Brown v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights Movement. Professor Michael Klarman, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Sure, let's uh, let's start here. You you open your piece at the uh, Take Care blog with a very descriptive breakdown of how far right the Supreme Court itself has lurched in recent years and even before the uh, to say the least controversial appointments of justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh under Donald Trump before then arguing for expanding the size of the court, arguing that such a move would quote inevitably appear partisan, but you add that rightly understood it is not partisan. How would expanding the number of seats under a Democratic president and Congress not be a partisan move as you see it, uh, Professor? Well, as you described, the Republicans have already packed the court, so I don't think unpacking the court would be unwarranted. I also think that there is systematic norm-breaking in the Republican Party today at both the federal and state level 
in such a way that, as you quoted me saying, if Democrats don't fight back, they're committing a, a sort of political suicide. Uh, so you have Republicans at the state level, like Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin, who's not willing to hold special elections this year because mm-hmm. his party was losing special elections. You have Republican parties in North Carolina and Florida that are openly threatening to pack the state Supreme Courts. Uh, you have Republicans in Pennsylvania talking about impeaching judges for daring to strike down gerrymandering under the state constitution. Uh, at the national level, over the last few years, you've had Republicans threatening to default on the national debt in order to extract concessions on government spending, something that's never happened before. You have Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stealing a seat on the Supreme Court from Democrats. You even have Senator McConnell before the presidential election in 2016 doing something truly extraordinary, uh, refusing to speak out against the Russian interference in the election. Uh, even though Obama intelligence officials were briefing him on what was happening, he refused to issue a bipartisan statement uh, alerting the public to the fact that the Russians were interfering in the election because he thought it might hurt Donald Trump's chances of the presidency. That's getting pretty close to treason, uh, standing up for the interests of your party uh, when there's a foreign entity at work stealing an election. So there's a kind of sickness uh, that's been spreading in the Republican Party for the last decade or two, uh, it's certainly not true of all Republican voters, many of whom I think would be unaware of some of these things that I've enumerated and would have a problem with them if they knew about it. But you can't go on, the Democratic Party can't go on uh, playing by the established norms and traditions of democracy when the Republican Party is willing to do anything to win. Uh, that's unilateral disarmament. It doesn't usually work out very well for the party that disarms. So this is a fairly mild way to, to fight back. The Republicans stole a seat on the Supreme Court. The Democrats need to offset that. They're entitled to have the majority that they would have had if uh, Judge Garland had replaced Justice Scalia. Mm-hmm. I should also point out that Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. You would think that would also entitle them <laughs> to control the Supreme Court, but because of some of the oddities in our election system, that hasn't materialized. So I think this is actually a fairly mild effort to simply claim back what is, is Democrats are right, rightfully entitled to. And if Democrats don't do it, once Democrats regain power, they're going to be faced with the most conservative Supreme Court in 100 years that could easily strike down every progressive initiative that Democrats could get through Congress. So efforts to expand voting rights, efforts to do reasonable gun control legislation, efforts to expand health care, uh, I wouldn't put it beyond the conservative court to strike down all of that, given that they came within an inch of striking down Obamacare. And, and yet, I can't tell for certain here, but you write in your piece that uh, adding one justice would be an obvious and eminently equitable solution to Mitch McConnell's theft of the uh, seat that President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill. Uh, that, of course, would result in a 5-5 to split, essentially, in theory, based on the court's makeup right now. If, if a seat was added and a, a Democrat was able to appoint one more uh, justice. But if the Democrats are going to expand the court, shouldn't they add enough seats to take back the majority uh, that should have been theirs in the first place? Why, why be so equitable here, Michael? Well, I don't think adding one seat offsets the theft of the Garland seat, because if Democrats had replaced uh, Scalia with Garland, Democrats would have a five to four majority. Mm-hmm. And then the death of Justice Kennedy, leading to the appointment of either Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, 
uh, that would still be a five to four majority because mm-hmm. that's one conservative replacing another conservative. You can't get rid of the replacement for the seat that was stolen. Mm-hmm. So the only way to offset Gorsuch is not to add one, but to add two, right? What Democrats are entitled to is the majority that was stolen from them. And adding one seat doesn't do any good because it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it puts Garland or whoever on the court, but it doesn't take Gorsuch off the court. You can't do that because he has Article Three lifetime tenure. So you do need to expand the size of the court to two. You can actually make a pretty good argument, I think, that Justice Kavanaugh ought not to be on the court either, mainly because I think in a sensible world we could all agree that Donald Trump probably isn't in a position where he ought to be putting anybody into life-tenured positions. So it's partly the fact that his election was owing to intervention by Russians, which he may or may not um, have colluded with. Uh, it's partly because he lost the popular vote by three million votes. It's partly because his victory is attributable to the improper intervention uh, by the by uh, the FBI director. I think in a sensible system, we could agree that somebody whose claim to the presidency is as thin as his, you know, obviously he's president. Nobody's saying that he shouldn't be making the sort of day-to-day decisions that a president makes. But the idea that he'd be thought to be influencing the Supreme Court 35 years into the future when there's a pretty good case he ought to be impeached and removed from office, again, in a sensible system where we could somehow abstract from our political preferences, I think we could get a pretty fair amount of agreement that such a person isn't really equipped to be making lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. So your argument, then, is is generally uh, not unlike David Ferris, as I mentioned at the top, uh, add enough seats to the court to give the Democrats their one vote uh, majority back. And that would include, for example, if, uh, God forbid, something happens to your old boss, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or if she steps down, that and at that point, uh, Democrats would need to add three seats to the uh, to the bench in order to take back the majority. Is that essentially what you're saying? As many as would be needed to take back the no, majority? No, I don't think I would go that far. I don't think, you know, if Justice Ginsburg died during a Republican presidency, then I think the Republican president ought to be entitled to replace her, bracketing this point I just made, that I don't really think Donald Trump ought to be putting anyone on the Supreme Court when, at a minimum, he's obstructed justice, and at a maximum, he may have colluded with Russians in the theft of the presidential election. So, again, in a sensible system, I think most people could probably agree about that. Uh, but my, my claim is not that Democrats should control the Supreme Court at any cost. I think that's the Republicans' position, is we get to control the Supreme Court even if it means stealing an appointment. My position is their theft has to be offset by and put us back in the position that we ought to have been at if the seat, had, seat hadn't been stolen. I think it's a complicated question when the other side in politics mm-hmm. is breaking all of the traditional norms and yep. rules, exactly how you should respond. Because if Democrats just become like Republicans, I think, A, it's morally wrong, and B, it's likely to just blow up the whole system. I'm not claiming that we ought to blow up the system, but I am claiming that if you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back because you abide by the existing norms when they're systematically breaking the existing norms, that's not a very sensible political strategy. So, you know, we need to restore the status quo ante on the Supreme Court to what it should have been before the Republicans stole the seat, how many more norms we ought to be breaking, you know, I think that's a contextual question, and it depends on exactly how egregious the Republicans' position is, how worried we are about a vicious cycle to the bottom, whether there are alternative strategies that could be more successful. Right? When, when Republicans suppress the vote 
as they do systematically at the state level whenever they have the opportunity. The response to that is not for Democrats to suppress Republican votes, but for Democrats to try to entrench democracy and make it easier for everybody else to vote. Right? That's a easy solution to mm-hmm. the problem that Republicans are trying systematically to prevent Democratic constituencies from voting. There is no analog to that with the Supreme Court because of the lifetime tenure problem, right? When Trump, once Trump puts Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, he's there for 30 or 35 years. You can't undo that, right? You can undo Republican gerrymandering by Democrats either gerrymandering or preferably appointing independent commissions that don't gerrymander at all. You can't undo a lifetime tenured Supreme Court appointment. And by the way, they're packing the Court of Appeals at least as badly, right? They prevented Obama mm-hmm. from getting any Court of Appeal judges but one in his last two years in office, and they've now taken advantage of the stockpiling of vacant seats to appoint 29 Federal Court of Appeals judges in the first two years, so they pack the lower courts as well. No, no, you, you, very you, difficult. You, you've misunderstood, uh, Professor. Uh, Donald Trump said that uh, he learned that Don, uh, that uh, Barack Obama just fell asleep and forgot to appoint anyone in those last couple of years uh, in right. office. That's what he told us. One of the big counter arguments here, however, is that, you know, if Dems expand the court, then uh, when they, you know, take control of the White House and Congress, that Republicans will then do the same in kind when they gain, once again, full control. Uh, Isn't this uh, going to do little more than trigger an endless cycle of Supreme Court expansion? Uh, Now, I mind you, I agree with you. I'm just not sure how this moves forward, when and if this would ever end. So the key point is that Republicans are already packing the court. I understand the argument that if Democrats pack the court, Republicans will simply pack the court in kind. Republicans are already packing the court. They've mm-hmm. packed the Supreme Court by stealing a Supreme Court seat. Mm-hmm. They're packing the Court of Appeals by McConnell systematically obstructing President Obama's appointments. In North Carolina and Florida, Republicans are openly touting what they're planning on doing, which is to pack those state Supreme Courts, mm-hmm. even though the voters have rejected, well, they rejected them in North Carolina by electing a Democratic governor, Mm -hmm. and we'll see what happens in Florida on November 6th. So the first point is, Republicans are already packing the courts. So the Democrats' response is, we respond in kind, or we allow you to get away with what you've done. The second part of the, the, the argument is, if you let them get away with what they've done, a conservative Supreme Court, already acting pretty much as an arm of the Republican Party, even before Kavanaugh replaces Kennedy, Right, they already bust up labor unions. They already uphold voter suppression. They already make up animus against uh, Christian bakers while ignoring animus against Muslims in mm-hmm. the travel ban case. Mm-hmm. They already pretty much act as an arm of the Republican Party. They will systematically frustrate any aspect of a progressive political agenda that Democrats may enact once they take control of Congress and the presidency. So are we supposed to sit around and allow them to do that, or are we going to back, or are we going to fight back? I'm not sure what the best political strategy yeah. as to when to talk about this. Right? It may be that Americans are not yet prepared for this. People need to be educated about it. Maybe it's wiser to talk about it after Democrats regain control and after the Supreme Court starts striking down progressive legislation. I'm not a political strategist. I don't know the right time to talk about it. I do know that people need to be thinking about this possibility. Yep. And it's not radical. It's responding to 
an extraordinary rightward shift in the Republican Party that is tearing apart the rules of democracy. For the uh, for the record, uh, since we had mentioned uh, Ferris, he is a political scientist. He does say that uh, Democrats need to begin making this argument now, as opposed to after they gain control of the Congress and the White House. Uh, the argument being that uh, you know it needs to be made a part of the party platform, so that if they ever do gain control, it can be cited sort of as a mandate. But then, of course, there's the counter argument that Republicans will use that against them, uh, you know, to say, well, don't let this happen or this is what Democrats will do. I'm not sure of the uh, answer to that either, but I I agree it is a conversation we need to be having. One more thought here. You, You note in your piece at TakeCareBlog.com that altering the size of the court has been done many times in American history, though not since 1870, and is clearly constitutional. But you add that that doesn't mean that the current court would uphold it if, in fact, Democrats actually did this. So any attempt to expand the court, even if it doesn't require a more difficult constitutional amendment in order to accomplish, uh, would would need to clear muster with the very court that is being expanded? And if so, on what imaginable basis might the court be able to block such an effort if it was carried out by Congress and signed by the President of the United States? So the size of the court is not specified in the Constitution. It's pretty clear that the size of the court is something that Congress in its discretion can set. The original Supreme Court was six. It was expanded to seven, then it was expanded to nine, then it was expanded to ten during the Civil War, then it was actually contracted to seven to prevent President Andrew Johnson from appointing anyone, and then it was expanded from seven to nine, which was an effort to give Ulysses S. Grant two appointments, who then actually did alter the outcome in the case that had previously been decided the other way. So that's actually the closest analog to court packing, was expanding the court, I think, in 1869, to nine, which enabled Grant to change the outcome in a case that had just been decided a year or two previously. Um, Changing the size of the court is clearly constitutional. I suppose somebody could argue that for the last 150 years, a norm has developed that we don't change the size of the court, or we certainly don't do it for obviously obvious political reasons. Since it's been done before, and since the Constitution doesn't say anything about not doing it, I would think that's pretty clearly constitutionally permissible. The reason why I add the parenthetical saying, of course, that doesn't mean that the court will sustain it, Mm -hmm. is that today's Supreme Court has done lots of extraordinary things that I think are very difficult to justify under the conservative justices' own professed theories of constitutional interpretation. So, for example, just to take one example, Mm -hmm. when they came within an inch of striking down the Affordable Care Act, that was based on a constitutional argument that was so ridiculous that even Republican opponents of the law in Congress didn't think of making the argument. Nobody actually took the argument seriously until a law professor at Georgetown University started making it, and then a bunch of Republican lower court judges started striking down the statute. Mm -hmm. So I think that the judges can be very creative in what they do, (laughs) and they're obviously not going to like the idea of court packing, so I don't assume that they would uphold it. If they did strike it down, then Democrats will have to look for other ways of retaliating against the court. You know, you could take away their law clerks, make them do their jobs for themselves, and that would probably have a big effect on how they undertook their, their jobs. They couldn't function without their law clerks, and it's pretty clear that Congress has the authority to set budgets for the court, and it could take away their law clerks, mm. and that would be a real problem for them. So I, I would worry about that when we get to that point. 
Um, I would hope that if they realized that progressive opinion was so strongly in favor of doing something to allow this progressive legislation to be sustained, at some point they would back off, just as the court did in 1937 in the face of Franklin Roosevelt's court packing. The court got the message and understood that they were going to be destroyed if they didn't back off and uh, allow the dominant political forces to have their way. So one educational effect of the court packing threat is it'll have an impact on justices like the Chief Justice, who cares a lot about the institutional legitimacy of the court and his own historical reputation, and maybe he can tame the court a little bit from mm-hmm. doing crazy things in attacking a progressive political agenda. Yeah, there was uh, there's another case uh, that is moving up against the Affordable Care Act as well that seems to me to be similarly ridiculous, but it may be uh, it may work its way through the uh, through the lower courts on up to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, very quickly, I got to get out here. But it, are there steps uh, for the lower federal courts that could also be taken to counterbalance uh, what the, the the various coups that the Republicans have pulled off? Or is that just, uh, hey, politics, Democrats lost that one, we'll just have to wait to fill vacant seats with Democratic appointees next time they're in power? No, I mean, it, it, there's an easy solution. If the Republicans have packed the lower federal courts, the Democrats can just expand the size of the federal judiciary. That's clearly within Congress's discretion. So, you know, if Republicans control... 60% or 70% of lower federal judiciary, and you think they're doing inappropriate things, stymieing progressive legislation on thin constitutional grounds, you just expand the size of the federal judiciary. It would be better if we didn't do that, and it wasn't so long ago that nobody would have thought of doing that. The question is, if the norm destruction has gotten so bad, and we haven't said anything about President Trump, who in a dozen different ways is a threat to the perpetuation of democracy, right? We've never had a president who systematically attack freedom of the press, independent judiciary, independent law law enforcement, encourages violence, threatens to use law enforcement to attack his political enemies, pathologically lies. We've never had anything like that in our history. There's a really serious threat to democracy. And what's happening with the Supreme Court and the Kavanaugh nomination, the Gorsuch nomination, the theft of the seat from Garland, that's just one aspect of democracy under threat. So... You know, we're going to have to think creatively in order to rescue democracy, and that may mean occasionally fighting back in ways that Democrats don't gravitate toward naturally and that they would prefer not to have to use it all in a normal political environment. But you can't just respond by disarming in the face of this incredible threat that the Republican Party is posing to the basic norms and institutions of democracy. Yeah, and getting uh, Democratic elected officials to start saying these same things uh, that you are, Professor, boy, it would be nice to hear them talking about it uh, right now, as far as I'm concerned. Professor Michael Klarman, he is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor at Harvard Law School. I'll point folks over to your uh, piece at TakeCareBlog.com, headlined, Why Democrats Should Pack the Supreme Court. Thanks for speaking out on this issue. Uh, the conversation has to start somewhere, so I'm, I'm glad folks like you are, are jumping into that fray. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back. Uh, we got a few more minutes here, I think. Let's talk about uh, what we can do to not disarm before November 6th. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. 
please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, I've got uh, I've got uh, voter purge stories from three different states, but let's say I only have time for one state. Oh boy, so, yeah, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, the uh, the states, in case you're wondering, are yes, uh, Georgia again, Tennessee. And uh, Alabama, let's go ahead and do this Alabama story for now, since we've only got time for one. And I want to finish up with a little uh, musical exit today. Okay. A little encouraging musical exit. Okay, before that, let's go to Alabama here, which is, uh, oh, man, uh, Alabama. And by the way, Alabama, Shelby County, Alabama versus Department of Justice. That is the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. So, yes, you should expect problems in Alabama. Congressional candidate Mallory Hagan said on Thursday that a worrisome number of Alabama voters have been removed from active voter lists, prompting her to create a committee to assist people who encounter problems before and on Election Day. Hagan's campaign said that more than 55,000 voters in the 3rd Congressional District alone have been disqualified or labeled inactive since February 2017. Wow, this year alone? In just the past year, yep. This is according to numbers that her campaign obtained. Hagan did not allege any wrongdoing by the state, but said that large number is of concern and echoes questions across the country about voting access, stringent photo ID requirements, and policies that she says are, quote, riddled with discrimination. Hagan said, according to our most recent findings, more than one in 10 voters here in East Alabama have been removed from the active voter rolls. She said that those voters are either removed completely or or have been marked inactive on the voting rolls. She announced the creation of a committee of lawyers who will volunteer their assistance to voters. In addition, she says her campaign will staff a hotline. For voters to report any concerns, this is also a good time to remind you all to call the uh, National Voting Rights Hotline at 866-OUR-VOTE with any problems or questions that you might encounter while registering to vote or voting early or any time between now and on Election Day itself. And tell your friends about that number, too. 866-OUR-VOTE, run by the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Hagan is a Democrat and a former Miss America, by the way. She is running against Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican congressman, in the uh, November 6th election. The Secretary of State's office, that would be my friend Secretary of State John Merrill, (laughs) said uh, that last year 340,000 people statewide were put on inactive voter status During a required update of voting rolls, Merrill said that inactive voters can still vote on Election Day, but must first update their registration information, which apparently 
they can do at the polls, I guess. However, that's going to cause a delay for everyone. Now, you're going to hear a lot about these purges. It's not necessarily a wrong, bad, terrible, illegal thing to purge these voting rolls. People do move out of state. They do die and so forth. But Republican states are doing so very aggressively this year. So check your registration now and help all of us to avoid surprises on Election Day, because even if you are allowed to vote, but you have to update your info, that's going to cause a delay for everybody. U.S. Congressman Mo Brooks, a Republican, was among the voters who discovered that they were placed on the inactive uh, list when he went to vote for himself in last year's U.S. Senate primary. So this could happen to anyone, and it may happen to everyone on Election Day, November 6th. Check your registration. All right, Jennifer Lewis, actress, comedian, singer, activist, and yes, my fellow native-born St. Louis Missourian, worked for years on Broadway and uh, then in movies. Now she's on ABC's Blackish. Uh, she has a musical thought or two for folks that I think she posted on Twitter. Is that where this on comes Facebook. from? On Facebook. On Facebook. Little thought for folks as they uh, head toward the November 6th election with early voting already underway in many states. Don't listen to the trolls. Get out to the polls. Join the debate in these United States. You gotta be in it if you want a new Senate. Here's the quote, get your ass out and vote, <laughs> come on y'all, <laughs> uh, get your ass out and vote, hey, get your ass out and vote, if you want to see change, get your ass these are not dark times, these are awakening times. So get your ass out and vote. <laughs> Jennifer Lewis, thank you very much. Getting my ass out to vote. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, Harvard Law School's Professor Michael Klarman, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. Share us far and wide. Help get the word out. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And my thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us do what we do every day. I was going to say something about my ass, but I won't. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 